Aloha, and welcome to Sup FM, the podcast for stand-up paddleboarders everywhere. So with no further ado, let's get out on the water and on with the show. Here are your hosts, Nick and Simon. Good morning, Simon. How are you doing? I'm outstanding, thank you. The sun's shining, the birds are singing. It's a great day. Uh, I need to get out on the water. Well, I was out in the water this morning and it was fantastic. Actually, it was was merging on um, sort of unsafe conditions. It was getting to be 15 knots and I was taking some and uh, teaching some friends, but uh, so we had to call it off a little bit. But that actually brings us to the subject of water safety and something that you and I are both really concerned about, right? Absolutely. Well, we've all noticed the huge explosion in paddle borders over the last few months and particularly since lockdown, which is an absolutely fantastic result for the for the um, for the industry. But uh, obviously there are some dangers involved in that as well, which is you know, replicated in all of the Facebook groups that I've ever gone into, which is people who are absolutely intent on on safe paddling um knowledge about tides and winds and you know what do they wear and so on and um and we've uh, we put together over the last few weeks and uh, soon to be released um some information in that regard haven't we intensely researched and yeah drawing on all our knowledge over the years because you started paddling a good few years ago so did i we've both done multiple uh, stand-up paddle certifications and um yeah, we'd, some, we've both done some a lot of research into this, and, and we're doing a video course, which will be coming to your screen soon. So we're really excited about that. So we're just giving you a little heads up before it gets in, but it's going to be a, a SUP safety course that you'll be able to do whenever you want, and it's all online through video. So that's really exciting for us. And, and one of those components that we talk about within the course is taking your phone with you and how important it is to have your phone. There are a lot of apps that can help you in your stand-up paddling. So we've compiled a list of the best apps. And that's independent of the course. We do talk about apps on the uh, on the course itself, but you don't have to wait for that. Just go on to uh, supfm.show and sign up for our email list and you will get that list of apps absolutely free. And it's all the apps that uh, we use to, to plan our trips. And also, actually, there's a couple that we use to amuse ourselves as well, aren't there? Yeah, <laughs> but um, this week we've got Christian Shaw all the way from Santa Cruz. Actually, he was born in New York, but we'll find out more about where he's from and where he's been to university. And and he created this um, organization called Plastic Tides. So very appropriate for, for this month and Plastic Free July, isn't it? Yeah, Plastic Free July. Yeah, so we've actually got a bit of a, a thread going through here with Plastic Free July. We had Sup Garbage Man on. and uh... Yeah, yeah, we, we kicked off with Sup Garbage Man. Um, incredible response to, to his episode and, um, you know, love speaking to him. And, uh, you know, it's great to get uh, Christian on, uh, as you said, New York to, to Santa Cruz, isn't he? He started Plastic Tides. Well, you can find out how he started Plastic Tides by listening to the episode. But I think essentially he's helping young kids to understand the the dangers of plastic and to pick them up and, and show them all the, the terrible things that plastic is causing to our oceans. And um, as all of us out there, every time we go out and you see a bit of plastic, hopefully you'll pick it up and, and bring plastic back and even mark it on the Plastic Patrol app. But there's just so much of it out there. And it's just, I think it's... Uh, we need to actually talk about this. It's a real big issue. And um, it's even more so in the forefront of our minds as stand-up paddlers. So he's weaved stand-up paddle 
into his mission. And um, it's an interesting story. And there's so much more to talk to him about. So I think we'd love to try and get him back. But um, yeah, here we go. Listen to Christian Shaw from Plastic Tides. Christian Shaw, welcome to the SAPFM podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Nick. I'm uh, really excited to be here. Yeah, where are you at the moment right now? I'm in Santa Cruz, California. So Santa, in, like for those people out there who don't know California so well, like me, whereabouts is Santa Cruz, north or south of LA or near San Francisco? Or Santa Cruz is about an hour and a half south from San Francisco and is actually almost right in the center of the state. Uh, a lot of people think of sort of Santa Cruz, San Francisco area as Northern California. But if you look at the map, it's really right in the middle, just about. So about six hours from LA and pretty close to San Francisco. Wow. Six hours drive from LA. That's hectic. Huh? Yeah. You know, honestly, I don't really find too many reasons to head that way. So <laughs> yeah, it sounds like the land of smog. I was just interviewing um, Kristen Thomas from LA, yes, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, something like I think we worked it out it was eighteen million people in LA, which is a, is crazy. Yeah, you know the urban sprawl. It's one of the most sprawled cities in the world, to my knowledge. And uh, anyway, you know, there's a lot of good things going on there, but not my cup of tea. Yeah, yeah. So your CV reads like you could be the perfect adventure man, a dive master, wilderness first aid, whitewater sub instructor. What is the goal? What is your dream job when you were twenty? When I was 20, I would say I was really interested in combining my interest in sustainability and conservation, you know, with that, uh, you know, my adventure prone tendencies and, uh, and passion for water sports and the ocean. And so, uh, I could say I, you know, saw myself getting into something, uh, you know, sailing around, taking people, diving, kiting, surfing things like that. Um, but, you know, I didn't really have a, a really clear vision for what I was going to do until a couple of years later as, you know, I progressed through my college career and and my studies and, and stuff. But yeah, you know, it's, uh, I think it's uh, in a way, uh, I guess I could say, you know, I would have envisioned myself doing what I'm doing now. However, one thing that, that I do look forward to getting back into more, especially as hopefully we come out of this this pandemic is the uh, the guiding aspect and and really getting out there into the backcountry, uh, you know, and, and teaching people, you know, your skills and knowledge. So, yeah, it's a really rewarding. Um, it's a really really rewarding work, isn't it? Guiding. I mean, I used to be a, a river guide and a, and a field guide on a game lodge, and uh, and also a stand up paddle instructor. So it's yeah, it's very rewarding when you see. You know, you're sharing the, the wild with people. It's it's a really exciting job. Yeah, it is. And I, you know, I, I find that I'm, you know, sort of a natural teacher. I really enjoy, you know, my instruction in, in whitewater paddleboarding and, you know, other sorts of paddling disciplines and uh, kite surfing and, yeah, you know, really anything. And I'm also fancy myself, you know, to be a bit of a naturalist. I, you know, I kind of think that's a, a really fun path to lead, you know, throughout your life, just sort of, you know, sort of... Uh, gradually you know accruing knowledge about the world around you and all the different aspects yeah so were you born with i mean we're not born with it but i mean like in your early years were you exposed to the outdoors that um, by your parents was it part of your life growing up i was absolutely yeah i grew up in ithaca new york in upstate new york and uh, my mom's a science teacher and uh, my parents are both you know really adventurous and spent a lot of time in the outdoors and 
you know, going to the coast, exploring tide pools, uh, hiking, camping, uh, heading out to the Isle of Shoals off of Maine, New Hampshire, uh, where my parents studied when they were in college. So uh, I grew up uh, landlocked, but had a lot of exposure to the ocean and, and to the outdoors at a young age. It's wonderful. Which is yeah, it's the best way to grow up, isn't it? It's, uh, it really is. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you were living in upstate New York. Was it, is it pretty easy to to zip down to Cornell University because that's where you did a BSc, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, Cornell is actually in Ithaca, so um, so that's in part how I ended up at Cornell. Is that it's in my hometown, and I, uh, you know, it took some work <laughs> uh, to get in there, but it was uh, somewhat destined to go there <laughs> since I was a, a really young kid. So it was, it was kind of a dream come true in a sense. Because it's hard to get in, right? Because it's an Ivy League university, right? One of the top ones in, in the US, right? It is. Yes, it is. Yeah. And anyone who's seen The Office will know will know uh, what Cornell University is. I don't know if you're familiar with that show, but a really popular comedy. In the oh, US. The Office, yes. Yeah. The Office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because um, yeah, they had a run in the UK and then they did, a, did one, a US-based version as well. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Actually, I need to give the credit where it's due there. That was the UK... Uh, <laughs> production first but yeah anyway there's a character who went to cornell uh, in that show and he's always reminding everyone about it which uh, it's pretty funny oh but, brilliant but yeah great yeah. university and uh, really really good place to to you know develop uh you know some skills and knowledge and and interact with a lot of really cool people so is that where you did environmental studies that's right yes i uh i studied sustainability sort of from an interdisciplinary perspective i had Maybe a, a non-traditional path through university. I was in a more really heavy science-paced sustainability major when I first started out and managed to escape from that and the gnarly chemistry that was kicking my butt and uh, and broaden my horizons a little bit to be able to focus more on sustainability from, you know, an interdisciplinary perspective, learning, you know, about you know, the different technologies and ways you can approach sustainability issues and the business side and, you know, taking classes in sustainable agriculture and mushroom foraging. And, uh, you know, I had an opportunity to take the wines class at Cornell in the hotel school. Uh, I took a really, really viable negotiations class in the hotel school as well. Uh, that's that's served me, uh, you know, countless times throughout my life. Uh, so it's, um, yeah, it's a uh, an interesting path, but I, I gained a lot of knowledge around sustainability. And I also completed a business minor, which uh, helps out now as I run a, a small bootstrap nonprofit. And I'm also involved in a few small businesses. Mm -hmm. Is that plastic tires that you're referring to? Because I'm, I'm wondering how, um, how how you went from from the university through to plastic tires? How did you end up? Yeah, so it's a it's a pretty fun story. It's, it's actually all really connected. Plastic Tides, the sort of inception point for Plastic Tides, you could put at a National Geographic Young Explorers Grant Conference that I attended along with my co-founders in the fall of 2012. And from there, we just had this idea and we knew that we wanted to combine our passion for you know, the outdoors and adventure with sustainability and conservation. And as we were approaching graduation, uh, we were able to put together this project, which started out as a kiteboarding expedition to basically kiteboard across this, you know, garbage dump in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and get 
drone or helicopter aerial footage to, you know, open everyone's eyes to this issue of plastic pollution. And we soon learned that that was not feasible, firstly, because no such thing exists. You couldn't actually see it from the air because it's more like a plastic smog that's distributed, you know, throughout the water column. Uh, and you could be sailing through the Pacific. Are you talking about the Pacific Gyre? Yes, yes. Yeah, I'm talking yeah, about the Pacific okay, cool. Gyre. Yeah, so that you know that project, despite how cool it sounded, wasn't really feasible for a number of reasons. Um, but you know, firstly, because you know you can't actually see the Pacific Garbage Patch from the air or even from the side of a boat if you're not actually paying attention, because it's a lot of small plastics, you know, sort of in this soup or smog stratified through the water column and so what started out as as this grand idea uh in the middle of the pacific was distilled down to a 10-day self-support stand-up paddleboard expedition around bermuda and we designed a trawl to pull behind our paddleboards and sample uh, surface plastics and we filmed the entire trip for an educational web series and then we did a dozen school visits on bermuda directly following and the whole idea was to basically combine adventure and science to create this fun, engaging platform to address plastic pollution. Because at that time, you know, there were a couple big players, Five Gyres and a few others addressing the issue. But it was, you know, from this very, you know, direct, this is the issue kind of approach. And no one was coming at it from, you know, something that was creative and engaging and fun. And so we wanted to do that and, you know, really inspire young people along the way. Okay. And how did you go about getting funding for that, for that trip? And, and, and as the, from the business side of things of plastic side, plastic tires, how did that kick off? Cause imagine going to an investor and saying, Hey, we want to go and do this fun trip in Bermuda's. He's going to be like, ah, oh, really? It sounds like you're going to have a whole bunch of fun. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's remarkable. That's, you're not the first person to have that sort of reaction. And it's, uh, it's honestly, it's honestly somewhat frustrating because, uh, if people knew the reality of what it takes to do something like this, it's, uh, fun is, is the last thing that comes to mind. It's, you know, type two or sometimes type three fun, but, uh, Despite yeah. actually being in a beautiful location like Bermuda, the reason that we chose Bermuda is because uh, it's situated in the North Atlantic Gyre. And so it's actually an island that um, gives you really wonderful access to this area of the ocean that, you know, has a similar effect from plastic pollution like the Pacific. And so, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, back to your question, though, getting getting resources and support for the trip uh you know, that was, was challenging, but I think we had a lot of success early on, you know, given where we were, you know, we're coming from, you know, we had put together something fairly unique and we were able to get a number of pretty big brands like Cliff Bar and, you know, Goal Zero, Camelback, Backpackers Pantry, companies like that to help out, you know, particularly on the gear front. And we also ran a Kickstarter campaign and got a lot of support from friends and family uh, through that avenue to make it all happen. Well, that's excellent. And, and what happened to the, um, the scientific information that you picked up on the trip? Yeah, so that was our first foray into, you know, using our paddle boards as research vessels. And we collected surface samples along with our partners at the Plastic Ocean Project. And we analyzed those samples and those were shared, you know, through their networks. Uh, and then we also took samples through... Um, for a program 
called Adventure Scientists, and they are doing a global microplastic survey. And those samples can actually be found, or the, the results from those samples can be found on their website. They have a really amazing visualization. It's this global map. And this is a project that they set out in 2014 and ran through maybe 2018. And the goal was to, you know, basically engage the whole mission of adventure scientists is connecting scientists with adventurers in the field who can get them, you know, samples from potentially hard to get to locations. Jeremy Jones, you know, pro snowboarder has worked with them a lot as one of like the main spokespeople uh, for the, for the group. And so they did this global microplastics project that the aim was to basically visual, you know, visually illustrate the scale of this issue with samples of microplastics from all over the world. And so we started working with them on that first expedition around Bermuda. And you can see the results from those samples on their website. And we, we ended up uh, taking samples uh, for that project from probably a dozen different locations from the River Thames to uh, Alpine Lakes near Chamonix to, you know, West Australia and uh, Hawaii and, you know, anywhere in between. So. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Sounds like a, a good trip. Um, but let's just, should we talk a little bit about the, like the global impact of plastic and, and how massive it was? Because cause obviously it's, it's a massive thing to try and tackle. Um, I know plastic oceans have stated the following. We're producing over 300 million tons of plastic every year, 50% of which is for single-use purposes, utilized for just a few moments. But on the planet for at least several hundred years, I think we all know this right now, um, but more than 8 million tons of plastic is dumped into our oceans every year. So how do you feel about that? I mean, doesn't it just such a mind-bending problem? It's impossible. Doesn't it get you frustrated? You know, it's it's one of those things that uh, the numbers are really staggering, but you know, I've been doing this officially since 2014 and, and really, you know, looking into the issue um, more significantly since I would say 2011, 2012. And fortunately, I think I'm pretty long past that stage. Uh, I've been working on this issue for so long that, um, you know, I, I really just keep myself focused on the, the positive things that we're doing. And uh, also, Having been in this space uh, since then, it's really inspiring to see the progress that we've we've made, especially around 2017, 2018, when the BBC and Sky News partnered up and they made plastic pollution a big thing, you know, for a year. Uh, and then you see, you know, National Geographic jumped on board and, you know, and from there, you know, there was an explosion in the space, you know, hundreds of new organizations popped up and and the issue has really come into the mainstream and so that provides a lot of positivity for me i think despite the enormity of the issue and you know the the way that it's affecting our oceans currently and some of the factors like you know the forces behind big oil and the way that connects to plastic and you know the goals that the plastic industry has to double their output you know those things uh you know, can be somewhat ominous, uh, but, yeah. but at the end of the day, you know, consumers rule. And as we, you know, continue to become a more educated populace, uh, you know, we have the capacity to, to influence that, you know, so, you know, at the end of the day, as much as any company wants to sell a single use plastic, someone still has to buy it. 
But it's becoming socially unacceptable to, um, to you know, to even buy drinks with straws. I mean, just just about an hour ago, I was down at a cafe and and they served me a smoothie with a straw, and I didn't didn't touch it because you know I think a lot of people are feeling that, especially in Europe. I don't know what is it like in the states. Are they feeling that sort of social? Um, you know, social angst of actually using single-use plastic. Absolutely, you know, and I think that it's becoming, you know, akin to throwing your cigarette butt on the ground. It's you know, or, or spitting on the street, or you know, leaving your gum on the sidewalk. It's you know, starting to become something that's being normalized into society as something that, you know, we recognize as pollution, as hazardous, as wasteful, you know, as something that you know an upstanding global citizen doesn't want to engage with. So, you know, I just think that as long as we keep moving in the right direction, that um, I do think that there's a positive outcome down the road in the plastic space, especially especially due to the uh, rate of innovation as well. So, you know, I think that this sort of uh, combination of a, a bottom-up, you know, consumer choice-driven approach and a top-down uh, you know, industry research-based approach is really where we're going to see the most success. And I think we're seeing that, you know, there's a lot of innovation in the, um, you know, biodegra- biodegradability space, uh, people using, you know, uh, for instance, uh, there's a really awesome company here in Santa Cruz called Cruise Foam that is using chitin from, you know, shrimp shells to make a, uh, like a solid polyurethane type closed cell foam that, you know, they're talking with companies like Pepsi about, you know, replacing the foam that goes, you know, above and below a pallet of Pepsi cans or like a case of Pepsi cans from, you know, a petroleum based foam to something like this. And so as we see those sorts of shifts to take over as well, you know, it's uh yeah, there are tons of options, but um, that, that's the kind of frustrating thing. Is it like if you look at it from a statistics point of view, do you think we'll ever win the war on plastic? And do you have any figures that can try and suggest that we're going in the right direction? I can tell you that uh, our youth program, the Global Youth Mentorship Program, has uh, stopped over two million plastic utensils from going into the waste stream to date, and. Uh, you know, is going strong. And so, you know, that's one positive number I can give you in terms of just what we've done as an organization. And yeah, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't have uh, that many statistics, you know, um, on hand, you know, that type of thing. But I I can just tell you from, you know, being in the space and, and paying close attention to it, that we're definitely moving in that direction. Oh, that's good news. Because it's, sometimes it feels kind of, Absolutely, um, like like we're never going to win the war. But um, you've created a community called Rising Tide, right? How big is that, and how fast has it grown? Uh, the Rising Tide has over three thousand members now, and you know that that's basically just our email uh, subscriber list is the Rising Tide. And so when you go to our website, you know you're joining that group, and that's how we stay connected with with our sort of core community. Uh, and you know it's growing really quickly. Um, you know we're. Uh, it's been something that uh, we actually haven't been focusing on that specifically until more recently. And so uh, we're hoping to see a lot of growth in that community. Yeah, I'm sure you get lots of people because that's a, and, and how does that relate to the, um, so what is the name of the, of the, of the youth um, community that you're building as well? Yeah, certainly. So our global youth mentorship program is our main focus right now as an organization. And, 
we combine motivated youth in middle or high school with mentors who can support them through projects that are going to have a lasting impact in their school or community. And so those these projects can be anything from, you know, mitigating plastic utensils. So, you know, replacing plastic utensils with a sustainable alternative, uh, which, you know, we've had a lot of success with. Uh, to planting an orchard in underutilized space around the school so that students have access to plastic-free, you know, nutritious fruits, you know, certain times of the year, uh, to testing the water coming out of the drinking fountains and maybe upgrading the hydration infrastructure so students feel more comfortable refilling their bottles and, and you know, helping to ingrain that sort of reuse, refill culture into schools. And so... There's all these different types of projects that students can engage with that have a huge impact. And we've been able to quantify that impact, which really helps, you know, um, garner support for the program. And, you know, what we found is that by simply providing this support structure and mentorship for students, they're able to achieve so much more and really reach their potential uh, compared to trying to go it alone. Because when you're that age, you know, despite being the most motivated, you know, creative, inspired student, there's still a lot of challenges and it can just be, you know, really daunting to try and see a project due to completion. And so having the agency and the resources, you know, the support from Plastic Tides and their individual mentors, um, you know, allows these students to have a hugely amplified impact and and one that ripples out through their community. Excellent, yeah, because they're the future leaders of the world, aren't they? They are, and as much as we love working with adults and educating adults, the reality is is that, like you said, you know, kids are the future, and they're so much more receptive to these things. And so, you know, from the beginning, Plastic Tides, you know, has really been about inspiring youth and supporting, you know, youth to have an impact. Yeah, it's amazing. My 12-year-old daughter, I learned from her every day. She's always saying, Dad, you know, this is this and this is this. And uh, it's great from an environmental perspective. Uh, we, we touched on this in previous podcasts with other interviews, but why do you reckon paddleboarding is a perfect motivator for people to get involved in environmental activism? I mean, you've used paddleboarding on a lot of your expeditions as well, right? So why, why choose paddleboarding? Paddleboarding is an amazing vehicle for change. Uh, we chose paddleboarding back in 2014, at that time, it was arguably the fastest growing sport in the world. You know, we were still on that steep, uh, you know, up curve um, in the industry. And, you know, we saw uh, there were only really a few people out there doing multi-day self-support paddleboard stuff. And, you know, it was unique. It was interesting. And we saw that it was something that was really accessible to you know, a huge range of people, anyone from someone charging out at Peahi to, you know, your grandma, you know, down at the at the lake house next to the dock. And, you know, being able to have that platform combined with our mission just seemed like a perfect fit. And, you know, at the end of the day, it was also really fun. I mean, we'd got into paddleboarding and we're having a ton of fun with it and, you know, had come from sort of a more traditional canoeing, kayaking you know, paddle sports and tripping background. And, you know, I think anyone in the paddleboarding space could agree that being able to stand up on your board and, 
it's just a much more pleasurable way to you know to travel on a on absolutely. A I can second that for sure. <laughs> so do you remember the very first time you ever stepped onto a stand-up paddleboard? Like where about was it, and what were you doing? And I do, Nick. I do. You know, that's a great question. And uh, I actually, it was in a small town called Dongra uh, up in West Australia. So I ha- I had the uh, opportunity to head out to West Australia while I was at university. Uh, for a study abroad semester. And I went out there to kite surf actually, um, which I ended up doing a ton of kite surfing, but it was, it was more transformational in the, in the surfing realm for me, uh, as like a, an overall experience. But I, my first place that I went to right when I got into Perth, I met up with this guy that I had connected with online and we went north to this event called kite stock and at that time i was you know a huge kiteboarding fanatic i'm still really into kiting um, but you know it was what i was i was really living for at that time and we got up there and you know really cool little town you know all these pro kiters around super psyched and you know first day rolls around no wind and that and that was and that was the the event it was only a few days and the wind forecast was dismal, but fortunately, there was some crew there from uh, Air Rush kiteboarding, and uh, they had a bunch of starboard subs as well. And so there was some fun little waves coming in, and of course, there was no wind, so it was pretty glassy out. And uh, yeah, just got out there on the paddleboard, and honestly, was immediately hooked and just saw the potential for just, I mean, going out there and just catching these little, you know you know, shindy high waves, you know, for hours and I had an absolute blast. Oh, that's amazing. I was sold. (laughs) (laughs) So you learned to to sup at Kitestock. I mean, that's such a cool name for an event and then there's no wind. What a letdown. I know, man. It was such a fun event and uh, it was pretty funny too, actually. This guy guy, uh, from Zimbabwe, Phil, that I connected with, we get in the car and, and we're driving up there and, and, you know, I've just known this guy for maybe an hour and we're chatting, you know, of course we connect around the kiting issue. We're all stoked out. And he's like, so, uh, so I got to ask you something. Uh, so there's this, uh, there's this costume contest they have every year. And, uh, I really want to win this year. So I, w- I went all out. I got a horse costume. Oh my God. But, uh, <laughs> but I need you to be the, the ass. <laughs> and so yeah i was i was the ass of the horse and and we we sure as hell won that damn contest oh fantastic what a result (laughs) yeah that was pretty fun it was a good year you should should have tried to get the ass onto the paddleboard or both of you guys onto the paddleboard at the same time that would have been hilarious i know we were up on stage with the with the horse but that would have been good fun getting out there on the paddleboard but talking about subs, I mean, I was looking at the video of your, and we'll drop that in the show notes as well, the video of your your Bermuda adventure expedition that you did initially with, with plastic tires. And and you guys had some catamaran subs, which I've never seen before in my life. How did those come about? Was it early days? or? Yeah, so, you know, really early days. I got connected with Live Watersports, who makes the, the catamaran hull uh, boards. Um, when I was doing some work down in the Florida Keys at a place called Other Side Board Sports Keys Cable, and through personal connections, uh, got hooked up with with John at Live, and we were doing this, you know, ocean 
expedition circumnavigation. We knew we were going to have a lot of gear, you know, research equipment, camera equipment, all these things. And, uh, you know, that he had this brand new board that he'd come out with, with the tunnel hull and the catamaran shape. And it just seemed like a perfect fit. And yeah, we got, we got them sent out there and, and they, they worked really well for us. And, you know, we've used them on a number of expeditions and we've now since moved on to working with uh, partners at Starboard and Badfish uh, more consistently, you know, and using inflatables for a lot more of our trips just because of the logistical components. But uh, we still have some of our live boards that we use for our trips back in upstate New York. And, and man, when you're doing research off of a paddleboard, there's nothing better. And they're, uh, you know, for being out there in heavy seas or, you know, it's a, it's a really phenomenal craft. So it's a little, little funky. And some people, you know, might be sticklers and say, Oh, that's not a paddleboard or whatever, but it's, I'll, I'll tell you what, go paddle couple hundred miles on one and tell me it's not a paddleboard <laughs> yeah it looked pretty choppy down there in bermuda on some of the days so it obviously came in handy so it's really stable right obviously with, with two holes it is it's super stable yeah and especially once you put some gear on there the stability increases significantly because you know, you've got that ballast and so i mean it's so stable that with a with a proper load of gear you can stand on one foot on one on the rail and you know not even sink the rail underwater so you mentioned there were other adventures as well so what um, what other expeditions have you done well that's a that's a long list nick but uh our first trip uh, well, was <laughs> let me see if let me see if i can if i can get them all in order so we got we started out in bermuda and we did our circumnavigation and then we came back and we did our first erie canal expedition uh where we made our documentary and discovered the microbeads uh, in our local waterways uh, and then from there in New York, uh, in New York, yeah, in upstate New York. And that was in the fall of 2014 was our first trip there. And then uh, we went back to Bermuda the next spring and we did a nonstop 20 hour circumnavigation of Bermuda to launch the Beat the Bead Bermuda campaign. And uh, we did that. That was kind of a crazy trip. We actually were paddling around the South Shore of Bermuda in the night time. Um, which is yeah it's true it's really really screwy paddling at night isn't it it's weird did you get any fish jumping on your board we didn't really have too many fish jumping on our board fortunately but just i mean it sounds like you know the phenomena of paddling at night especially in the ocean yeah. is 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 uh, hard to describe yeah. you know just everything's reactive so it's really really exhausting i mean by the morning by the time the sun came up we were like zombies man <laughs> we were i'm sure <laughs> yeah um, like but yeah so we that was uh so we had that the non-stop circumnavigation around bermuda and then um and then we did uh there's a few i might get the orders wrong but uh we did a trip in on the big island of hawaii into waimanu valley with an inflatable sup uh, to take microplastic samples uh, i paddled from uh, Oxford to London on the Thames, taking microplastic samples as well. That was really cool in March of 2016, uh, high water Thames, which was really fun. Uh, and uh, we've done expedition in the Alps, uh, done trips in West Australia, um, done some river stuff. Uh, so yeah, you know, they, we've been around with our, our expeditions. We were just most recently 
in the Adirondacks in upstate New York with our youth group. So now our focus more recently has been on our youth expeditions. And so we've been doing those since 2015, uh, but have been expanding that program. And it goes hand in hand with our global youth mentorship program. And so students who complete their projects are then eligible to join us on one of our summer uh, youth expeditions. So unfortunately, you know, the pandemic has uh, put a wrench in things on that front. However, uh, it's a great opportunity to uh, fill you in on the virtual expedition that we're going to be launching uh, at the beginning of August. Uh, so we're going to be doing a, a worldwide uh, virtual expedition where people can basically go on and sign up to paddle, you know, uh, some miles to move the our little paddler icon around the world uh, to raise, oh, raise funds that's... for the Global Youth Mentorship Program. And so that's going to be a year-long endeavor, and we're hoping to raise $100,000. Uh, so it's about 25,000 miles, so $4 What's the mile. link with that? Is, that? is that up and ready to go or not yet? It is not up and ready to go yet, <laughs> uh, yeah, but, but I, will, I will definitely share the link when it is. Um, but, yeah, that's something that we've got, you know, we're putting together – um, just, you know, kind of trying to adapt to, you know, the pandemic and, you know, expeditions are really core to the ethos of our brand and, and what we do and something that we really love. And, uh, and so, um, we've taken this opportunity to, you know, uh, do this virtual expedition and involve the, the global community. But that is so cool that, that you've taken, you know, virtualize expeditions. Cause I mean, some people figure, trying to figure that stuff out and say, well, how can you do that? But, um, and they've virtualized sub paddle races as well which is great uh, have you done any 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 virtual races over over lockdown i have not no i have not but i have been following you know what's been happening in the space and i mean of course you know it's in the ether so i'm not going to say that this was a completely original idea here <laughs> to yeah. do a virtual a virtual expedition um but yeah it's really fun to see how people are adapting and you know it's so important for us to get outside and and to be active and to have that as part of our lives. And, you know, I think, um, you know, with this pandemic, you know, everyone of course has to take the proper precautions, but unfortunately I think in a lot of parts of the world, um, people were not able to, you know, delineate between, you know, hanging out, for instance, like hanging out at the beach with a picnic or going to the beach, you know, so you could, you know, go surf by yourself or go paddle by yourself, you know, and get that, that thing that you need for your, you know, your personal health. And so um, for, I've been really fortunate here in Santa Cruz, you know, whenever there's been beach closures, uh, they've been, you know, kind of on the Hawaiian system where as long as you're, you're moving active, doing something and you're not with other people, then you're good to go. And so uh, that's been really nice, but I know it's been a really challenging time for a lot of people around the world. Okay, so from, from virtual expeditions to dream expeditions, if you could do an expedition anywhere in the world, where would you go? It doesn't have to be for work. It could just be for pleasure. Where would you go? Oh, I love that question. <laughs> North. Uh, I, I've been dreaming of, of doing an expedition through the Northwest Passage for a really long time. And I don't think it necessarily would have to be the Northwest Passage, but I think I'd like to go somewhere in the far north and uh, – a route where there's going to be really epic scenery, like maybe some tight type of, you know, fjord-esque waterways, you know, with mountains and cliffs and, uh, and you know, sea life, orcas, narwhals, 
polar bears. Uh, I think that would be the ultimate. And a bit of a bit of cold temperatures as well. You can handle those, right? A bit of cold temperatures as well. Yeah, you know, I I really love whitewater. Uh, so, you know, I uh, I've I've been listening to some of your episodes, and uh, you know, I would have loved to join that trip on the Zambezi as well. So that 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 could definitely <laughs> fit the bill for me too in terms of a dream expedition. Um, and the Grand Canyon too, honestly, is is one that. Uh, is really high on my bucket list. So, well, that was another question: is of people, and they must have stand up paddled the Grand Canyon. But I mean, there's some serious rapids there, and they great, great fives, right? Yeah, it's gnarly. Actually, a, a good friend of mine um, and and a teammate uh, at Badfish, uh, Spencer Lacey, was the first person to sup the Grand back in I think 2014 or 15. He did it on a stand-up paddleboard and he's done it a number of times since and more recently he's actually paddled lava falls one of the biggest rapids on the grand buck naked there's, yeah. there's photos of that online if you're interested oh yeah no come wait to see that <laughs> but yeah it's it's pretty cool to see where paddleboarding has come in, in the whitewater space man it's uh people are really pushing the limits I mean, everywhere, in, in all aspects, really. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, obviously just recently, well, a couple of years ago, um, the South African Chris Burdish crossed the Atlantic on a stand-up paddleboard. Yeah, man, I followed that trip really closely. And, and uh, yeah, I had the pleasure to meet Chris uh, in Bermuda, actually. Um, we organized an event there, a sustainability event called Protect Blue, and had, had Chris as a speaker and got to hear uh, some pretty amazing stories from him. Yeah, One he's that an really inspiring sticks, guy. Huh? Sticks out, yeah. Involved a, a whale or a giant squid or something. He was not sure which, but uh, yeah. If any, if you ever have the opportunity to listen to some of his stories, he's he's really inspiring. Well, I need to try and hit him up for the podcast. It'd be great to chat to Chris because I mean, we're both from the same same town. He's from Cape Town. I'm from Cape Town. So hopefully that'll that'll work in my favor. <laughs> oh, absolutely, man. Yeah, definitely. You should definitely have him on. Yeah. So talking about that, like, if you had a favorite sub personality you'd like to meet or have met. Would it have been Chris Burdish or would it be someone else as well? Well, you know, it was really amazing to meet Chris and he's super inspiring. Um, I guess an, another sub personality that I've had the pleasure of spending some time with is Zane Schweitzer, um, both here in Santa Cruz and, and over on Maui. And uh, he's he's really inspiring, uh, just his energy and, and passion for not only water sports, but also sustainability. So, you know, we really vibe on that level. And uh and then someone else who's been a huge inspiration uh, for us at Plastic Tide since the early days is uh, Bart DeSwart, um, oh, yeah. another one of those really hardcore expedition guys. And, uh, you know, I remember when we were first doing our, you know, early research on expedition stuff, he was kind of the only guy or one of the only guys that there was, you know, anything. And he was already had his inflatable sup bed and was sleeping out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, you know, going between these tiny islands and stuff. It was like, man, who is this guy? It's crazy. It's crazy. And then that, that's just the first story I heard about him. He's like sleeping on his stand-up paddleboard in the middle of the ocean. I mean, wow. Man, I mean, and that stuff was like so, yeah. And, and I've, I've actually uh, had the opportunity to meet Bart at the uh, Sup 11 Cities tour as well, which is really cool. So. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I guess I, I would say I've been fortunate enough to meet, you know, all of the sub personalities that have, uh, really inspired me to, to this point, but, you know, I'm always, uh, looking out for, you know, new people doing really cool stuff. 
Sure. So, Christian, what's next for you and what's next for Plastic Tides? Well, you know, as I mentioned, we're really focused on our, our Global Youth Mentorship Program. Uh, just recently launched that and we're aiming to have 100 students enrolled for the 2020-2021 school year. Uh, so I've been really head down on that project. And, um, you know, uh, I've also got a personal project that I've been working on um, uh, for almost a year now. I'm making a sustainable surf wax called Trees Wax. And so I've been working on that here in Santa Cruz. And uh, yeah, that's that's something that I'm going to be uh, rolling out uh, much more widely here soon. So yeah, really excited that about that. Great. And uh, Is yeah, that, just... Um... Actually, wax from a tree is it sort of sap from a tree that you've created? Yeah, so it's a, it's an entirely uh, uh, plant based. So it's made entirely from trees and perennial plants. Uh, so supporting regenerative agriculture system, you know, and the whole idea is to educate people about the importance of trees, uh, not chopping them down to make paper, but actually, you know, growing them in, you know, agricultural systems to provide for, you know, our daily needs as opposed to, you know, industrialized uh, monoculture like soy or wheat or, um, you know, for instance, a lot of the other plant-based waxes out there use a lot of soy wax. And so, you know, that's great. It's not petroleum, but it is almost petroleum in a sense if you if you understand that that agriculture system relies entirely on inputs from chemical fertilizers, which are created from petroleum. So even though it's a plant, like the chemicals that went into that plant came from petroleum. So when you use that to make a wax, especially at a large scale, you're essentially supporting that, you know, system. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I set out to do something different. Uh, and also to not use beeswax, which has a number of really amazing properties. But once again, uh, at this point, I don't feel like at the scale that I want to be able to take the product um, and the price point that I want to be able to hit that beeswax can be sourced ethically at that at that scale. And also, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are vegan. And so to be able to check that box for people as well, I think is another great asset. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah, that sounds great. Good luck with that. I mean, hopefully that there's so much more we can hear from you in the in the coming months because I wanna, I really want to get into that virtual expedition as well. That sounds great. But how so? How can we follow your work online? Yeah, so you can follow uh, me personally, Crisscross Shaw on Instagram, and then Plastic Tides at Plastic Tides across all the platforms, uh, as well as at our website PlasticTides.org, and you can go there um, to support us. You can sponsor a youth leader for $20 a month. You can actually have a personal connection with a student and get uh, personalized updates about, you know, their projects, um, you know, or there's a lot of other ways to support our work and uh, look out for the, the virtual expedition as well, because that's going to be really fun. And we're going to keep the barrier of entry really low for that. So people can get out there and, and paddle some miles and and get involved awesome well yeah good luck with everything it's been fantastic chatting to you and there's so much more so maybe we should try and get you back on sometime because there's so much more to find out about yeah i'd really enjoy that nick yeah thank you and uh this has been great hopefully we'll talk soon thank you for listening to sup fm the number one podcast for stand-up paddlers wherever you are if you like what you've heard please leave us a review on itunes until then We'll see you on the water.